Hi, and welcome to Hella Healthy, the world's sickest podcast. I'm Dr. Serenity Delaporta, your guide on this journey through health. Today, we are going to talk about how to be a savvy health consumer in our current confusing capitalist healthcare system. We are going to cover important ways to make informed health choices and discuss some of the things that can make it challenging to prioritize health day to day. We will end with some ideas for how to find good information and good experts to help you along the way, whether you want to maintain good health or are facing chronic health concerns. On the first two episodes, we discussed historical influences and key developments that helped us develop an understanding of the complexity of health. If you missed those episodes and want a firmer grasp of how we can be certain that health is indeed biopsychosocial or what biopsychosocial health even means, be sure to go back and take a listen. Especially check out episode two, which covers the history of health psychology. Despite an unprecedented amount of information about health and great access to it, and despite more people than ever marketing themselves as experts to help you, many people are left feeling quite perplexed about how to advocate for themselves with healthcare professionals and what changes they should make to live a healthy lifestyle. If things like staying active, not getting overly stressed, having close, meaningful relationships, and eating whole nutritious foods aren't already a part of your daily habits, it is really hard to start new habits. It can be even harder to stick with such changes. How to address health habits and keep up with any changes we achieve is confusing and difficult regardless of how well-intentioned we are. It can be hard even for people who are in good health and wish to stay that way. Once a person has health problems to address on top of improving their habits and is required to advocate for themselves and manage their condition, it can create a perfect storm of confusion and desperation. People who have chronic health conditions feel more pressure than ever to try and make healthy life choices, yet they are often impeded by the stress and logistics of managing the very condition that makes them feel this extra pressure in the first place. It can quickly lead to learned helplessness, that is, giving up altogether on trying to change behaviors. Consider this fictional composite example. Liliana is a woman in her late 30s suffering from several chronic conditions, including migraines, hypertension, irritable bowel syndrome, and polycystic ovarian syndrome. These conditions often leave her inundated with pain and feeling very fatigued. She is recently divorced and has a 14-year-old daughter and 10-year-old son. Her job is very demanding and high stress. She typically works 40 hours a week to cover her expenses, which leaves little time for self-care. Her job is physically demanding and exacerbates several of her health conditions. Liliana really wants to improve her health, but struggles to manage a variety of symptoms while also taking care of daily responsibilities. She is on several medications, but they only provide temporary relief. Her fatigue and pain levels make it difficult to complete important tasks. 
She regularly struggles with feeling worthless and defeated because it is a challenge even going to work and feeding her children. Liliana feels motivated to invest time and energy into caring for her health, but her suffering seems never-ending and inescapable. She is headed toward a place of hopelessness. She needs help. She does not qualify for disability. When she asks her doctor for advice, he tries to help her make healthy choices. He gives her a chart of fresh foods to choose from and information for how to use an elimination diet to identify the foods that trigger her IBS. He suggests a few ways to be physically active. He suggests she write down three things she is thankful for each day, and he offers a referral to a therapist. But when Liliana goes back home at the end of yet another long and painful day, any notion of prepping and cooking whole fresh foods, keeping a food diary, learning new recipes, trying to work out or do yoga, or even journaling, all feel impossible. She cannot afford to see a therapist. Even calling a friend to chat feels overwhelming. The thought of truly being honest about her situation feels too vulnerable. Sleep is her only hope of escape, but that too eludes her as pain and worries haunt her throughout the night. How can Liliana improve her health and quality of life? Who will be her allies, and what is their role in helping her? I have been in situations similar to this example. As a brief background on me, my childhood and early adulthood were marked with traumatic and stressful life events. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder in my early 20s. I have experienced several bouts of clinical depression, both in adolescence and adulthood. Upon studying the relationship between stress and health, I knew these things put me at greater risk for later health problems. So it was no surprise to me when I started having some health issues over the last 10 or so years of my life. One example that stands out for me was four years ago when I was diagnosed with shingles. I was shocked to learn this itchy rash I thought was poison ivy was in fact shingles, but it did explain a few very odd symptoms I had dismissed as unrelated, like extreme light sensitivity and numbness at the site before the rash broke out. At the time I came down with shingles, my oldest daughter was four. She had been born six weeks prematurely because I had preeclampsia and required an emergency C-section. She spent her first month of life in the neonatal intensive care unit. Now she was a toddler who regularly threw hours-long tantrums several times a week and required a very strict sleep schedule. Meanwhile, I was breastfeeding my younger daughter, who was two. My own sleep schedule was a bit erratic. Needless to say, it was a rough time for me. For the greater part of five years, I had been breastfeeding, raising young, challenging children, and either pregnant or healing from pregnancies that were hard on my body. I suspected that stress, both mental and physical, was the likely cause of my shingles. I brushed it off as an unfortunate fluke, took the medication that quickly cleared it up, and moved on. Or so I thought. Six months later, I got a strikingly similar rash accompanied yet again by new odd symptoms. When my internet search of those symptoms brought up shingles, I was floored. 
Could I actually have shingles again? Upon doing some research of my own, sure enough, it was possible. Anyone who has had chickenpox carries the dormant virus. It lives in your nervous system, hopefully remaining dormant. But it can rear its ugly head when your immune system fails to suppress it. Though this typically happens only once or twice in a lifetime, it can happen as many times as your immune system will let it. Back to the doctor I went. He was hesitant to believe me at first, but he listened well and examined me. I acknowledged how unlikely it seemed even to me. But I could not come up with another explanation, and he agreed my rash looked like shingles again. I did not want to let my rash worsen because shingles, if left unchecked, can cause irreparable damage to your nerves. It is not the kind of thing you want to wait and see with. As a person who highly prefers the wait-and-see approach, because most medical concerns are not immediate and I am medically conservative, this was difficult for me. However, I was willing to take the medication right away. If it was not actually shingles, I knew it was unnecessary and could even cause some harm to my kidneys or liver, but I really did not want to miss a true case and be left with lasting pain and nerve damage. If you've ever found yourself with an unusual or uncertain diagnosis and were faced with a pressing decision, you know the kind of angst I was feeling. Not to mention I was juggling all of this on top of caring for two young children. Blood tests indicated both recent activation of and long-term presence of the chickenpox virus. This indicated it was a shingles outbreak, but the science is imperfect. If you cannot directly test a lesion or a blister, there is no way to confirm the diagnosis conclusively. I had no lesion large enough to test, and my rash cleared up with medication. I accepted that it was likely a repeat case of shingles and hoped that was it. I focused on behavioral changes that might improve my immune system. I stopped breastfeeding and became vigilant about my sleep regimen. Eight months later, same thing. Rash plus other symptoms appear. Medication clears it up. I always went to the doctor immediately before any large blisters formed because treating it as close to onset as possible significantly decreases the likelihood of lasting nerve damage. I already had some shooting pains in my neck at the site of one of my rashes from a previous outbreak. Because I was treating it so quickly, though, I could never confirm conclusively that my case was repetitive shingles. I never had a lesion large enough to culture. Sometimes you just don't get all the answers. Thankfully, that was my last bout of shingles, hopefully for the rest of my life. This is what it is like to try and deal with health issues. Most of the time, we have to work with doctors to best figure out what is going on and how to treat it. There is often confusion and frustration along the way, especially with chronic or complex conditions. It can be hard to get a clear-cut diagnosis. There are few simple treatments, and treatments are rarely without risk. Many times, people need to make behavioral adjustments to address the issue as well. For me, I chose to stop breastfeeding to help my body and immune system. I also began to guard my sleep because sleep is the single most predictive factor in remission for these kinds of viruses. These were personal choices that took effort to achieve and were not easy to make. 
I had to consider the pros and cons of each and figure out how to make the changes work for me and my family. This exemplifies how important it is we see the patient as having a vital role in their own healing. People faced with health problems should first seek the help of modern medicine, which is the best method we have for diagnosing and treating medical conditions. Unfortunately, medicine is imperfect. Any person who has gone through our healthcare system in any significant way knows that our version of modern medicine has its limits. Trying to get help can present us with repetitive, frustrating, expensive, confusing, and emotionally draining experiences. In other words, getting help isn't easy. American healthcare costs us time and money and can be a real pain to navigate. Some of us have comorbidities, which is two or more diagnoses. Many of us require the help of specialists. In order to receive the care we need, we must work hard to get referrals and make appointments. Despite the universal adoption of electronic medical records, we find ourselves often lacking access to our own health data and having to regurgitate our medical histories at every intake for a new medical provider. If you are like me, it can be emotionally draining to include the psychological and social factors you think are relevant to your health over and over again. These types of dynamics push us as the patient to only discuss physical aspects of health with our doctors which as we know is only a part of our health story. It misses some really important information. Leaving out the psychosocial aspects of our health inhibits doctors from being able to treat the whole individual. Doctors can become inclined to view patients as a group of symptoms or diagnoses, not as complete people with feelings and interests and meaningful lives. When I moved to my current residence seven years ago, I became a patient at a nearby health center. Since becoming a patient there, my primary care physician has been switched on me three different times. If I need to go to my doctor for an emergent concern, I'm as likely to see a nurse practitioner as I am my own doctor. And even if it is my own doctor, I cannot expect him or her to be familiar with my whole history. It has proven impossible to build a relationship with my doctor. Ideally, I would have a doctor who knows my health history, including the psychosocial aspects, or at the very least one who has access to that information and reviews it so I don't have to keep saying it repeatedly. I recently had some heart palpitations that were not resolving. I went to my primary care doctor for an EKG to rule out concerns about my heart. I suspected it was simply a new manifestation of my lifelong struggle with anxiety. The pandemic has been hard on all of us, including me. Thankfully, my EKG came back normal. The palpitations resolved shortly after that, I'm guessing in large part due to the fact that my anxiety over it being a problem with my heart was eased by the normal test results. My doctor showed concern when I told her that I suspected it was my anxiety. She asked if I wanted a referral to a therapist. I told her I have one that I see when I need to. I have been seeing a therapist on and off for anxiety for going on 15 years now. I just wish I didn't have to keep explaining to my doctors how all this plays a significant role in my health.
I want to be known by my doctors, though I am grateful that I have learned how to tell my health history and advocate for myself well. For many of us, health problems, and when I say health, I always mean physical and mental because health is biopsychosocial. For many of us, health problems are a part of what we manage day to day. For me, this includes anxiety. When our concerns are chronic, it becomes a matter of knowing when it's time to see a doctor or therapist. It also becomes imperative that health professionals keep track of and communicate with each other about your case. But many times, we feel like we are the only one who really knows the full story of what is going on with our health. We have to continually advocate for ourselves. Even treatment recommendations can be confusing. Some may contradict or interact with other treatment recommendations made by other doctors. Some treatments require careful logistics to be sure they are carried out correctly. For those with comorbidities, truly coordinated care is a rarity, which makes managing multiple issues at once a nightmare. All of this going to doctors and taking on new treatments is done amidst complex and often painful health conditions. Persistent frustrations, along with financial barriers, make it very common for people to give up or try adding elements of alternative therapies. People are confused, suffering, and desperate for any way to improve their health. Medical doctors want to help confused patients who find themselves met with literally thousands of health-related decisions each and every day. It is hard to know how to best empower patients to make healthy choices on their own when they are out of the doctor's office. That is a matter of psychology, which few doctors are well-versed in. It can be hard to get patients to take a pill twice a day or go see a specialist, let alone change their eating habits, limit alcohol intake, or work on their relationships. Doctors are historically used to patients relying upon their expert evaluation of the evidence to determine the diagnosis and method of treatment. It is somewhat straightforward to diagnose a fungal infection and prescribe an antifungal or diagnose a broken bone and set and cast it. But many diagnoses and treatment recommendations are much more complex than that. Many conditions also have behavioral influences. When treatment recommendations are made without any explanation as to why this is the best course of action, which is often the case in doctor-patient relationships, the patient is left relying on the doctor to make their decisions rather than being brought on board with that decision. They are treated as a passive recipient rather than a valued partner. And the underlying assumption becomes that for patients to achieve health, they must simply adhere to their doctor's recommendations. This paternalistic nature of medicine is dysfunctional and problematic. Ultimately, it creates health consumers who are largely unable to advocate for themselves. Many doctors today work hard to try and avoid paternalism, but it is baked into the system itself. They must work against the system. Doctors and patients must commit to a system of shared decision-making where both are active participants in choosing treatment options. 
We are not passive recipients who should follow whatever steps or rules our doctors lay out for us. We are people. In fact, we are the ones with the most at stake. And we have our own thoughts, feelings, and values. For example, I was willing to take the shingles medication and take the risks that went along with that despite not being able to get a conclusive diagnosis because it mattered more to me to avoid the risk of lasting nerve pain. Only I can make that decision and only I live with the outcome. My doctor should be my ally, guiding me, giving me information, and making recommendations to the best of their knowledge. But it is not my doctor's job to tell me which of those risks is worse outcome for me personally, or insist on which option I should choose. It makes sense that doctors often give truncated and incomplete health advice without many explanations, because they are very rushed for time. It's often the best they can do to get an accurate diagnosis and comprehensively describe the treatment regimen. But this incomplete approach does not empower people to make informed health choices. This approach fails to account for the enormous number of choices we, the patient, must make every day regarding our health. We make thousands and thousands of choices each and every day that can lead us toward or away from health. Not that all health outcomes are up to us, but to whatever degree our behaviors do influence our health, these behaviors are driven by millions of choices. Furthermore, some of the choices we make about our own health can have direct impact on those around us. People need to have the skills necessary to find the right professionals and the right information to make informed choices that are right for them and those in their communities. There are several ways we can think about how our choices can lead to better health. The first, most common way people think of is called tertiary prevention, which is going to a doctor when you get sick or injured. The goal here is preventing severe outcomes once someone has already come down with a disease or disability, and hopefully healing the problem that has developed. Doctors treat health problems that already exist in hopes of making them better and avoiding any worsening of the condition. Sometimes people catch a problem very early on. In this case, we call it secondary prevention. The disease or disability has just begun to develop and is early on enough that if it is treated, the likelihood it will resolve completely is much greater. When doctors talk about prevention, this is the kind they most likely mean. Doctors want to catch problems as soon as they begin because this gives them the best chance at treating and healing it. Most of us care about this kind of prevention and take steps to get screened or see a doctor if we believe any problem is brewing. But the gold standard of prevention that is less often the focus of medicine but is becoming increasingly so is the model of primary prevention. Primary prevention means avoiding the development of a disease or disability in the first place. When a person has the right information and necessary resources and is able to engage in healthy behaviors, 
she may be able to circumvent certain avoidable health problems in the future. In this way, she completely prevents those health problems from occurring. Many people market things claiming to achieve primary prevention, but unfortunately, there is no quick and easy way to achieve this. This goal, however, is worth lots of consideration. What role do doctors have in helping foster primary prevention in their patients? Vaccination is a clear example of how doctors help us achieve primary prevention. What other ways can doctors help with this? What role do parents, teachers, and city planners have? Whose job is it to teach and enable people how to live healthy before they even have health problems? There are many factors that can impact our health habits. Many of our health decisions are unconscious choices that have turned into mindless habits formed in early childhood or early adulthood via key experiences. They are simply things we decided to do at some point and we keep doing without really stopping to think about it or consider alternative courses of action. It's our version of autopilot. Other health choices are more intentional. In that case, we are heavily influenced by our ideas of what it means to be healthy and our beliefs about what we are personally capable of achieving. We might view health as something we are personally responsible for or as something we can do nothing about. This is called our health locus of control. We might think we are healthy when we eat enough vegetables and get regular exercise, or we might think we are healthy when we feel peaceful and content. The things we think epitomize health are called our health schemas. As we talked about on the last few episodes, our views on what it means to be healthy are also shaped by cultural factors, socialization, and so on. Ideally, our health habits would also be informed by evidence. We have more information than ever before to help us make good health choices. Doing this requires being very savvy, however, because there is also more misinformation than ever before. Knowledge of how to access good quality information and interpret different types of research studies is called scientific literacy. And unfortunately, scientific literacy is quite low in the general population. Savvy health consumers need to have basic scientific literacy, but they need not be fully trained scientists. A big part of being savvy is also being able to find good professionals to rely on and how to spot when a seemingly good professional throws up some red flags. Savvy health consumers use competent experts and scientific resources to make health choices that are most likely to be beneficial and move them toward their goals. This means knowing your goals, generally speaking, and being clear about your health values. Each of us will have different things that matter most to us. For example, some people care most about how long they live. Others care more about their quality of life. Most people care deeply about both of these things, but the situations in which we would prioritize one over the other is unique to each of us. People need to be properly taught how to question things 
and think critically using reasoning and evidence. Being savvy means asking why a particular set of health advice is being given, or evaluating the evidence for oneself when you have good scientific literacy. But this can be overwhelming, confusing, and exhausting. It can lead us down the wrong path when seeming experts, or what passes as science, is pawned off on unknowing consumers as being legitimate. What is an average health consumer to do when even physicians disagree about the evidence, or apparent experts present persuasive but contrasting opinions? A huge weakness in our current system is that consumers are often unable to discern which self-proclaimed experts have valid qualifications and are deserving of their trust versus which are simply trying to profit or who have no legitimate expertise at all. Often the true experts on a particular topic are siloed in their professional or academic communities, while pseudo-experts flood social media and local communities claiming to have mastered complex health topics. As I shared earlier, I can certainly relate to feeling overwhelmed and desperate. I've found myself searching for any semblance of empathy and clarity in an otherwise confusing world of health information and an alienating healthcare system. Yet, I am truly perplexed at the number of people ready and willing to pay for health advice from people who are clearly not at all qualified to offer, let alone be paid for that advice. The number of online certifications and training programs aimed at individuals who wish to break into the health sphere continues to grow. Just because a person claims to be some form of health expert does not make it so, no matter how well-intentioned they may be. Many organizations have no standards for entry aside from an ability to pay. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, these online programs and certifications also typically have very low standards for passing and do not adequately prepare recipients to truly understand and address the complex biopsychosocial nature of health. Such people often undermine recommendations made by true experts. Many people claim to be health professionals, citing unfounded credentials and using jargon to create professional appearing websites or other media to achieve an illusion of authority. But it does not take much digging to discover how many of these so-called health experts know little to nothing about health sciences or medicine. It is easy to see that their credentials are questionable. To make matters worse, a variety of health-themed multi-level marketing companies are now growing in popularity. Is the average health consumer prepared to discern why such people are not true experts and professionals? And if they are, is it fair that they are expected to sift through this kind of nonsense to find quality help? Lots of people attempt to sell health because they are personally interested in it. You can find a gazillion wellness influencers who combine tips and tricks for eating well, staying active, and practicing self-care. Their advice may be sound in principle, but is much better sourced from trained physicians, psychologists, dietitians, 
occupational and physical therapists, or other properly trained allied health professionals who have the training and education to understand the evidence and theories underlying their advice. Wellness influencers should not be profiting off their personal health hobbies and often, let's be real, their personal appearance. It is unethical for such people to take money from honest consumers trusting them to give professional health advice that could have been spent on a true expert. Health consumers should not have to pay for trite advice and faux friendships masquerading as health information. But because these people are out there and there are more of them every day, a savvy health consumer must carefully evaluate the qualifications of any professional before handing over money for a health-related service or product. You deserve health professionals who are properly trained. Take the time to review the qualifications and requirements for completing the degree or certificate or license of any potential or current health professional. If the person has a doctorate or a master's degree from a respected university, it doesn't mean they are right about everything, but they are certainly more likely to be right than the guy who completed some training online over 18 months. Given how many qualified people now offer affordable and accessible services like weekly newsletters, apps, blogs, or consultations, why would you waste your time and money on someone who is underqualified? When you want to work with someone one-on-one -on -one regarding your health, ask yourself these kinds of questions. Does this health professional possess the proper expertise and clinical experience necessary to understand and evaluate my health and advise me? What evidence is this person using to make their recommendations? Is this person more committed to science and integrity or making money? Can this person clearly articulate why this is the best course of action for me using an evidence-based approach? How much will this cost me in terms of time, money, energy, and emotional distress? How invasive are the recommended treatments? The more invasive, the higher your bar for evidence should be. There are some wonderful resources for people who want to improve their ability to advocate for themselves and make informed health choices. One initiative I like because it is straightforward and easy to remember is the Ask Me Three campaign. This campaign encourages patients to ask three important questions when interacting with healthcare professionals. The first, what is my main problem? The second, what do I need to do? And the third, why is it important for me to do this? These three simple questions cut to the heart of the diagnosis and treatment and require the doctor to bring you on board by sharing the reasoning behind the recommendations and why it is important for you to do your part. But they can also be applied to other types of health professionals who are giving you advice. There's also a great channel on YouTube called The Psych Show that teaches many things about psychology and mental health. There's an organization called the Society for Participatory Medicine that works to empower doctors and patients to work together as active participants in medical care. Their website provides some great advice 
for being your own advocate and serves as a way to connect with others who care about these issues. There's another website called Science-Based Medicine, featuring thoughtful and informed articles on a variety of topics written by legitimate scientific experts. There are many competent health experts you can find and follow on social media like Twitter, but be sure to vet your choices and don't go off of the number of followers. These are just a few of the resources available to you that come from highly educated and properly trained professionals. Any of the websites I mentioned will be linked in the show notes for you to easily access and explore yourself. Importantly, there are many well-trained and passionate people from a variety of professional and educational backgrounds who have the proper skills to help you understand and improve your health. Find a health professional who can clearly explain how the recommendations are being made using clinical expertise and best available evidence, and who can tailor their recommendations to your personal goals and values. You have the right to understand the factors that influence your health, how any diagnosis is made, and why a particular course of action is the best choice for you. If the person you are paying to help you improve your health is unable to provide you with this kind of understanding, you can find someone better. The next time you are considering who or where to turn for health advice, take a moment to appreciate that your time, energy, and money are all limited resources and you have many options. Who will you trust to help guide you? Do they have the quality of professionalism and the educational foundation worthy of that trust? If we are stuck in a consumer-driven health market, which I believe we are, I wanna make it my life's work to help us all become savvier health consumers. My goal is a world where each and every person can clearly envision and articulate what they desire in their life and health their values and their goals, then identify those methods and resources that best enable them to achieve those things using scientific literacy, critical thinking, and skilled, trustworthy, legitimate health experts. It's a lofty goal, but it's one I hope that you'll join me in. That's it for today's topic. I hope you will join me for the next episode where we will be discussing stress and stress management. If ever there were a time to understand how stress is related to health, it is now. Here in America, stress has never posed a greater threat. Data gathered by the American Psychological Association found that in 2020, stress levels skyrocketed, and we have no reason to believe stress will go down anytime soon. As with all of the topics we discuss, much of what is driving this increased stress is out of our control. A worldwide pandemic has struck our country particularly hard. Unemployment is rapidly rising, primarily among women. Parents and other caregivers are unable to rely upon help like they did previously. Aside from staying vigilant about public health mandates, we cannot do much of anything about the nearly 4,000 COVID deaths a day, or the school closings, or the lockdowns, or the unemployment, or the insecure housing. And keeping the mandates is challenging and it wears on us over time. 
Now that we are almost a year in, many of us are feeling depleted. But we have learned so much about stress and the body in the last 90 years or so. We know about effective ways to calm our minds and bodies, ways that have shown real benefits. You can't control the situation we as a country find ourselves in and the stress associated with it. Yet we can learn ways to help counteract its influence. We all need ways to find calm and peace, ways to seek moments of joy amidst the chaos. I hope our next episode can serve as a step toward that for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hella Healthy. Have a hella great day, and please remember to be kind.